Thank you for downloading this podcast and welcome to Arrow Bandwidth, the podcast to help the channel better understand the trends, technologies and concepts that are facing the IT industry today. I'm your host, David Fern, and we hope you enjoy this Arrow production. And please subscribe. Thanks. Hi and welcome to season three of Arrow Bandwidth. We're back. We are back. We had a lovely break over Christmas and uh, it's obviously nowhere near Christmas anymore. It's not. How long can you say Happy New Year, Happy Christmas and Happy New Year for after Christmas? Uh, This is way too late. This is way too late. Okay, well I'm not going to say that then. But long, long and short, we are back and we have a fantastic... Season three lined up for you guys just as soon as we figure out what it's going to be. All right. So. Staggered. As per normal, my, uh, my co-host is Mr. Richard Holmes. Hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome. And as always, our producer, although she hasn't moved her mic very close to us, I'm guessing she doesn't want to talk this time. Then she's shaking her head. Is Hannah Jenny. Hello, Hannah. She's waving. Hi, Ham. So. Straight on to our first, uh, our first talk, our first discussion of the season, which is going to be um, top trends, text and technology, top trends, technologies and concepts. So this is my third year I've been writing these. Um, we've done them in two parts this year. So it's five and five. Five have gone out so far, and five will go out very soon. Um, and basically, it's my way of looking and sort of saying, well, what are going to be some of the standout sort of uh, performers, but in a way to look at a technology area or a trend that we might see in technology or a concept that we might see come through. And obviously, with the focus being that at some point, this has some relevance to the channel, mostly because it's some it's places where the channel can go and have interesting conversations about trends, technologies, and concepts that are going to be affecting their end users this year and into next. So it's a real sort of thought leadership, looking forward piece that I write every year. Um, I also sometimes write like a follow-up the following year to sort of say how successful they were. Didn't hit too many... Uh, no, this one was pretty successful. So uh, so you'll see that coming out soon as well, soon. But was it, David? Was yeah, it, it was. successful? Plenty well was, yeah. All right. Um, anyway, so what we're going to do now is we're going to basically talk about um, the first five of our trends, technologies, and concepts for 2017. You crazy fool. Because we thought it might be quite nice for you to, to hear, in our opinion, what these mean to us and essentially what they, uh, how they're going to affect you and the channel and, and you know what conversations you're going to have with the users. I think we should make it slightly interesting as well. Go for it. I think that when we get to the end of this year, Making a massive assumption we're still going to be on the air there. So fingers crossed. I think we encourage all our listeners to give us some feedback on, you know what, were we right, were we wrong? I think it's a great idea. I say say we, (coughs) were you right or wrong? And plus, I think, didn't we do an episode like this, I think middle of last year in season two? Almost like we've got show notes. We will will put this in the show notes. Um, Listen to that one and come back to us. And if you if you feel completely aggrieved that we were that far off the mark, please give us feedback and uh, we'll mention on the next show. And uh, yeah, we will uh, try to do better this year. So let's get started. Cool. So the first of my uh, my trends, te- trends, technologies, and concepts for this year was the power of the edge. Now each one of them has a natty little um, 
sort of byline that I tried to put in. Um, it sounds suspiciously like some sort of razor blade commercial does the power of the edge. It's going to just get that out in the open before we go any further. Yes, you can. Right, um, right. Yeah, so the power of the edge. So essentially, um, this was... M- so I, funny enough, I was doing a presentation the other day and I was desperately trying to figure out a way. So it's talking about different platforms. So okay. platform one being mainframe, platform two being sort of server client distributed computing. Mm-hmm. And then platform three being sort of mobile, web, e-commerce, not e-commerce, sorry, mobile, web, social, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then I sort of started to think about, well, IoT, interesting, you know, we obviously spoke about IoT a lot last year. Yeah. But, you know, some of these IoT devices have huge computing power inside them. So actually, there's a lot of power at the edge, and it's almost hyper-distributed computing. So you're almost saying that there is... There is less ambiguity about having a, a fourth level. Yeah, pretty much. I'm sort of yeah. trying to say that you know what? There's this sort of. So I'll give you an example, listeners, so that you're not, so you can follow along to some degree with us. You know, if you've got, so say you've got completely sort of um, ambiguous pieces of kit on the edge, like a, a CCTV camera, for example. Mm. That CCTV camera um, basically streams back its data to a central control room where they do facial recognition, they do all the clever things that help to keep us safe every single day. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the problems with that is the quality that you can send back and the frequency with which you can send it back is not that great because more often than not, it's running over pretty lackluster um, sort, of, uh, sort of cellular technologies which mm-hmm. only allow you to stream back maybe one frame every two seconds and a relatively low frequency, it's certainly not HD. In, obviously, in some built-up metropolitan areas like London, newer infrastructure has been put in place into certain areas. But the, the point is still the same. The point is still valid, that these cameras on their own are not that valuable. So what happens if you start to put computing power into that camera? So instead of streaming back the film or just the film, you can actually start to do the image recognition at the camera. So instead of having the image recognition doing going back to the place and or back to the central control system with these low ridge images, you've got absolute 4K cameras on the street doing sort of super high resolution image capture, image recognition. You could even upload the sort of top 20 suspects. I appreciate. I'm totally des. I'm doing a farmer. On the oh no, now. let's not go there again. Um, for, the, for those of you who listened to last season, um, you know you could up, upload sort of your top 10, 10 15, chickens. 20, you know, people you're looking for in London. Mm. Be that lost people, be that um, sort of convicts, be that whatever, and essentially have the cameras automatically send notifications to all the police cars around that particular area when they see someone in real time. So this is what I'm sort of getting to. It's about if you think okay, we've got all these bits of ubiquitous technology and they all work in a way, but what happens if we turn around and made them really hyper-intelligent and put a huge amount of power on the edge? How would that change? How would that shift how we did things, used things, created things? How did that shift our innovation? So I, think, I think for me, when, when you talk about sort of that, that, that power, and that processing power, that intelligence further out from the core enterprise where we've had that in the past to to edge devices whether it be whether it be a phone whether it be a camera yeah there are probably 
some really simple initial reasons why you'd do that. So CCTV examples, with, yeah, mm. the one that springs to mind is caught with latency at the edge. Now, you know what? The latency in the comms, the quality of the comms, and therefore putting some of that compute and process power and resource out at the edge makes perfect sense because you know what you can't assure the level of connectivity between yeah. that edge device and you know what the enterprise where you, where you would have done those sorts of tasks in the past mm. now you can apply that principle not just to a cctv camera but to maybe diagnostics in a car uh, yep. smart watch smart device um but probably one of the reasons why you do it initially is, you know what, the overcome the problems in communication and connectivity. Um, yeah, yeah. Not as you described with, with How Happy is London when we did, did that, that, that special. Not burn data, not just dump data because you know what, you can't transmit it back quick enough. Actually be smarter about what you gather, how you gather. Um, look for an economy and cost reduction or better utilize the the other resource that you've got because you might want to put, you know, like you say, better quality cameras out on the streets, but you don't have the budget or the wherewithal to improve the networking. Yeah. And I think, you know, you'll have different drivers to why you would look to put more compute out at the edge. I think it's a given that we can actually do that. <coughs> you know, when you when you look at at the cost of componentry, the cost of the technology to, you know, enhance, beef up turbo, something like a <laughs> turbo, you know what I mean. So um, to do that to something like a, yeah, a, a camera, and you, you've only got to look at the power that's in your smartphone nowadays. It's, you know, yeah, it's <laughs> it out, outstripped the performance of a laptop from five, five ten years ago. It's five, ten years ago? What? I think the latest iPhones probably outstripped two years ago laptops. I mean, it's oh. that crazy. So there you go. But yeah, you know, I, I think once people once people probably see see the benefit in doing that, then from those efficiencies that they drive, mm. to be fair, that's probably where they get the return on investment in putting smarter devices at the edge. Yeah, it's then right. It's those it's those additional services. It's mm. those well, hang on a minute. Now we can actually do something out there at that edge, then now we can start thinking of new services, new features, new functions. And I think that's one of the things that this, this prediction about the power at the edge, you know, we, we're lucky enough to, to meet you know, really interesting, clever, and, and driven people in you know, in our line of work, you know, whether that be people at vendors, whether that be some of our customers and some of their customers as well. And you know what? One of the trends for me that I've seen over the last 12 months is people looking at, at augmenting and enhan enhancing what they do as a core business or as a core service. Or if they're developing something new, it's like, well, you know, that in the past, but mm. actually wouldn't it be cool if we could do it this way? Yeah. Well, it'd be cool if we could augment and add this on. And I think people are, are starting to see that there are different ways that they can monetize the skills, the services, the, the solutions that they put out there. Yeah. By proxy, there are even, you know, completely <coughs> tangential 
and gentle. Yeah, I mean, going off, going off a, a, a completely different yeah. area to what maybe that device or that service was originally intended for. Cool. Now, will we see more of that? I, th- I think we will. Mm. I think one of the drivers behind that is this whole prediction of power at the edge. Yeah. Okay. I think it might take longer than a year, though. I but think we'll knows? see, yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things, I think we'll see it roll into stuff now. I think we'll start to see, and it's one of those technologies, once again, where you can start to have a conversation about, well, do you know what? We could actually put pretty much an entire computer into something the size of a coin, and, you know, we've seen the Raspberry Pi Micro. Mm-hmm. Nano, was it Nano or Pico? or the, Basically, the $5 computer that's got 512 meg of RAM, an HDMI port, and you know a USB, and has got an embedded processor that, as I say, is more powerful than a two-year-old laptop. So you're like, and that's literally the size of a postage stamp, mm-hmm. and that's available to anyone in the world for five dollars. It's like that will change the world because once you start to put that power into everyday devices, what you can do is just unbelievable. So, shall we move on? Let's move on. So the next one was um, once again. I said we had some natty titles. Uh, the year of the data divorce. What do you mean by that? So, we, um, we've we touched on this a few times about uh, different demographics of end users and their uh, storage habits, should we say. <laughs> the storage hoarders. Oh, where's this going? So, well, you know, we, we've, got, we've got classes of, of customer who, who hoard data. You know, we've heard this, these terms, um, the, the Databerg, um, dark data, uh, all these sort of interesting terms come around in the last few months, basically since GDPR started to become <laughs> real. Um, now, I, I've called this GDPR. the dreaded GDPR. So I've called this the year of the data divorce because okay, right. actually there's two routes to deal with GDPR, right? right? One route is you GDPR everything. The other route is you delete everything. Because up till... (laughs) No data, no risk. I like that. Bingo. Because the reality is, right, if we're looking at the cost per terabyte of GDPR, it is going to be expensive. So you don't want to be holding on to data that you think might have a value in the future. So the whole purpose here is, one, let's bring greater efficiency to people's storing of data. So people are storing data. Let's understand why, and let's help them to better optimize the stuff they're storing first and foremost, so they're not just storing everything, they're storing what's really valuable. For example, if you're an online e-commerce business and you've basically got millions and millions and millions of web transaction logs of every single time you and I have gone on to, I don't know, Amazon or something and clicked every single product, those products will be stored by Amazon against our name as our profile and they're used to create related products going forward. Right mm. now, that's a big, big problem because Amazon now have a ton of personally identifiable data that essentially describes yours and I's activity. Even when we haven't bought things, they still know that we looked at something, so they can you know alter the way that we perceive the Amazon, b- b- well, the Amazon online store to basically put things that we might like in greater sight and greater view. So, my my point here is that's an example where you've got a lot of raw customer data. You're going to have to essentially GDPR all of that. So how do you get around it? Well, 
you delete it. But before you delete it, you turn it into valuable information. So it's not about just deleting the data. It's about, instead of taking a security approach to GDPR, you take an analytics approach to GDPR. You turn all of that data into value, and then you delete it. Because the, re the reality is, do they need to store every single weblog transaction of yours and I's browsing around Amazon? Or would it be more useful to just store one line that says, Richard Holmes likes... Looks but never buys. <laughs> looks but never buys. <laughs> you know, Sorry. Rich Holmes, you know, enjoys looking at, I don't know, novelty, novelty fancy dress costumes. Anything. Anything you could have picked. <laughs> it could have got worse. Yeah. No but, mind. you know, instead of saying he's looked at all these ones individually, and I appreciate, right, Amazon's probably a bad example because they will have the money and the scale to be able to probably GDPR everything they want. But for an organization that's a lot smaller, an organization that has a lot less capability, turning that valuable information, be it emails, be it social information, and creating, instead of storing all the social data, just storing the, you know, the, the perception of that individual or the perception of the demographic, they didn't want GDPR, GDPR at all. It's all about another approach so you can strip out as much of the data that you've got in your organization before you need to go and then GDPR it. Hmm. Is I... I can see where you're coming from. Good. However, okay. I think, as per my previous comments on CCTV cameras, well, um, but edge devices and gathering data, yeah, I think... I think what we'll start to see is a, with certain businesses, yes, you, they'll, they'll do exactly that. They'll, they'll view the risk, they'll, they'll keep what's, what they think is the less risky option when it comes to personal identifiable data, and then they will burn the rest. However, I think you'll still see industries that are highly regu regulated and that require data to be kept. I think you'll see there you know, the, the coming together of disparate ref different levels of regulation, like you know, say regulations around financial conduct and you know, say retail banking and an overlay of GDPR. I think <coughs> you might well see businesses take a view of well. You know what? Let's let's par this let's par this right back to the very beginning. Let's move the nature of the risk and the problem, which will be towards a level of privacy assessments first and foremost. Yeah. Because if you can start to control and govern govern the data you gather, then by proxy you are starting to de-risk by, right, I'm putting a filter on the front end here. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose this is more for previously collected data that our organizations may have. So if you are an organization that already has five, six, seven hundred petabytes, or petabytes, terabytes of data sitting there, emails, web transactions, you know, customer satisfaction surveys from like 10 years ago, all of this sort of data that is going to need to be GDPR'd, how do you deal with it? The reality is it's relatively valueless. So put some of the money that you would have put into GDPRing it. And by the way, you put money into it now, you have to continually pump money into it to maintain that GDPR status and to retain and to keep with 
the various threats that come down the line that are going to risk you know, breaches going further on. My, the big thing here is minimize the data footprint that you've got to GDPR in the first place, then put in place exactly what you've just described for everything going forward. So it's all about you've mm. got hundreds of terabytes of data that is never accessed, that is there just in case you might want to turn it into value one day because you think you should store it all. And you're very, very... So, I mean, I, as a, you know, I've just, I was literally talking just before this. Um, and inside my inbox... I currently have 54,000 emails because even if it's junk, I don't delete it because that's just what I do. The reality is I am a classic data hoarder and I need Tell to... Tell by the way you're dressed. Thanks, babe. I need to get rid of some of this stuff because mm. it's, it's a stupid thing to be a data hoarder. I want to get rid of as much of that data as possible because a lot of it is totally and utterly pointless now. Some of it's really valuable, and some mm. of it I'll need to retain. Some of the sort of, as you say, the highly um, looked after stuff, the highly looked after stuff, the highly sort of, um, what do you say, governed stuff will obviously have to be retained. Mm. But a lot of that stuff, a lot of it is just my, yep, no worries, yep, no worries, yep, of course you can do that, yep, of course, whatever. I'll feel more comfortable with this prediction if, if we see that instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, <coughs> we see businesses applying a level or, or being able to economically apply a level of insight into, right, what I'm going to keep and what I'm going to throw well, away. Well, I mean, but that's the whole point. That's where the analytical approach comes in. Because you turn around and you say to an organisation, apologies, <coughs> you say, okay, so you've got all of this email, all this, in, all this social data about your customers. You've been pulling off Twitter. You've been, you know, doing clever things with Facebook. You know your customers really, really well. Mm -hmm. Now, is that valuable or is that not necessarily that valuable how do you essentially use it, work it, whatever? Yeah. That, that's what I'm trying to get to. It's sort of more, how do you turn it into information? Turn it into information, in, turn it into information first and then think about deleting it because it's going to be really expensive GDPR and it's going to be really risky to GDPR tons and tons of data. It's going to be much easier to do a really highly refined, highly understood, highly valuable data set than everything. I think we're going to see how this one runs. I think so. I think so. Should we move on? Let's move on. All right, so the next one, same sort of vein. In fact, the, uh, these middle three are, are very similar. Um, this one's all around data-driven decision-making. Now, the, the crux of this one is more about this is the year that data-driven decision-making becomes the norm. What I mean by this is, you know, as we've said in the How Up Is London podcast, how we've said in a lot of the big data and AI podcasts we've spoke, spoken about in the past, the, the problem that we had and the reason that we built the Howby's London project was because people looked at their businesses, looked at their organization, looked at their decisions in one dimension of data. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, by dimension of data, we mean type of data. So they look at, they make decisions on their whole organization looking at sales. Or the customer satisfaction business will make a, um, or the customer sort of uh, services business will look at, and make all their decisions based on customer satisfaction. And then the marketing team may make all their decisions based on social. But the reality is, that's essentially maybe taking the business in three completely polar opposite directions that may actually end up with the business failing as a, as a whole. Because the reality is, no one business can run based on one specific metric, because there's lots and lots and lots of metrics that affect any organization. So this is about, this is going to be the year where we see 
data-driven decision-making become the norm. And by that, we mean having a completely holistic view of all of the different impacts or all the different things that make your business what it is, and then taking the sum value of those to make the decisions, rather than looking at one dimension of your business in isolation and saying, right, so we're going to lay off 50 people because sales are down. Whereas actually customer satisfaction is up, and actually you may then use that to predict that you're going to have huge sales the next quarter, which you're going to need all those people for. It's all about those sorts of decisions, and it's all about being able to make those better. And the reason it's in here is because I believe that this year is the year that that's, that technology becomes ubiquitous and becomes something that people can get their hands on easier than in the past. Okay, so I'm with you on this one. I think we'll see. A, I think we are seeing a trend towards easier to use analytical tools. Exactly. So interfaces that are more intuitive, interfaces that do not require a data scientist to be able yep. to extract the insight that you're talking about. I think on top of this, if we take it to its logical conclusion, yeah, businesses face challenges taking silos of data from various line of business teams, like you said, sales, finance, operations, HR even, and, and pulling them together to be able to give that level of insight. I think as we see a level of those issues being, being addressed and overcome internally, I think what we'll also start to see is businesses augment their own data with external data, whether it be weather, social, whether it be open data sets. I think if it's easier to adopt, if the on-ramp from a commercial perspective, from a tech technical perspective, so analytics on cloud, is pushed as it seems to be by various vendors that we work with mm. and you know, the investments that they're making, you know, the, the evolution in the, the development of their software, I, I think we will absolutely see this happen. But it does require that ease of use, ease of integration to be addressed first and foremost. Because unless you can do that, you'll still have your data in different silos. And I don't just mean different formats. I mean, you know, technically being able to bring it together to give you that yep. multi-dimensional view. Exactly. And to finish this off, the call to action here really is, if you are still confused as to how to achieve this, our Hopis London project, the fundamental underpinning and the purpose of that whole project was to give you an architecture that you could leverage to pull in multiple dimensions of data and create a single succinct answer. So go to howhappyis.london and read up, contact us, and we can help you to achieve this in your customers. Moving on from that shameless plug. Damn bloody right, I do. Uh, okay, so next up, uh, machine learning revolution. So... The machine learning revolution was essentially my way of saying, this might sound a little bit over egg, but stay with me. Um, I, I think machine gonna learning... Go he's going to go all Elon Musk on his name. I think machine learning is going to be the next industrial revolution. Because if you look at 
what the industrial the industrial revolution basically um, you know took existing business processes and existing um, processes that existed in the world I'll say existed one more time um, they existed <laughs> they did exist um, but basically removed the need for a lot of the overhead that was involved in them and basically made a lot of people redundant essentially and a lot of manual process and turned it into machine process so manufacturing agriculture uh, automation and I can honestly see machine learning doing the same sort of thing because machine learning basically takes a lot of the repetitive um, repetitive sort of decision making you know, low end decision making processes hard yards. the hard yards in business process away if you need to check something, look at something, determine something, um, make relatively complex decisions very, very accurately, very, very um, objectively, and at a high rate of uh, high consistency, machine learning can do that a thousand times better than a human being. And I think more and more organizations are now starting to look at their business processes and saying, do you know what, we've got a human being doing that we could probably replace that with a machine-learned approach. And we could actually implement something that, that essentially takes those inputs in and turns them into the output rather than having a human being sitting there doing it for us. I would feel a lot more comfortable if we talk about this subject in the context of augmented intelligence rather than Ooh. machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think it is... You know, we're on topic for once here now. Yeah, you look in the pr you look in, in in the press in in the past few weeks, and and not just you know tech press, but you know mainstream newspapers yep. and, and publishers. There is a, a heck of a lot being spoken about about um, exactly what you've just said there. You know, a new industrial revolution, um, middle class, semi skilled jobs massively under threat in places like civil service. Yep. Um, healthcare, places like that. Um, and I think quite rightly, a lot of people are quite concerned about this whole thing. Yeah. But it's a comment we made about hard yards. I think the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence in certain areas shouldn't be viewed, or I hope, I hope businesses don't view it as a straightforward like-for-like -like replacement of manual skills with a machine. Yeah. I hope they look at it from a point of view of gaining a competitive advantage, augmenting customer service and service levels, and giving them access to a resource pool that can be redeployed elsewhere for other more valuable mm. human-required skills. Well, type it comes back places. to this whole thing of I don't want to see us living in a world like Wally, where we're, you know what, we've all been replaced and had to. But the reality, I mean, the reality is though, off. we had this exact same fear about the industrial revolution, and the, and the reality is that there are more jobs today than there were back then. Yeah, and I, I think actually there's this term, and I don't think he'd like it, but I think it's appropriate for today, which is moving us up the value chain. It will move people up the value chain because people will become more high skilled and high valuable. Those low end skills will disappear. I don't want to sound like a Luddite, uh, and it's, yeah, I, I think I probably have come across as a little bit of a one there, but 
I'm, I'm on board. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with mm. the whole concept yeah. and idea of deploying a, a, AI. I think, though, it will turn out to be a topic way, way, way above this podcast. I think we'll, we will see a lot more in common culture about you know the, the fears and the the reticence to embrace some of yeah. some of the some of the really good things that AI and machine learning can drive. But I mean if we had to bring it back to the channel, I think yep. it's really, really simple. Look at it. Look Watson, at Watson, Microsoft Cognitive Services. Yes. Really, really simple ways to get engaged and help your customer to introduce machine learning and high level optimization and automation to business processes. Absolutely. Get involved. Once again, speak to us. We've done it. We've got it in production. We're working with it. Come speak to us. See how we've done it. See how you can do it with your customers. Yeah, we've, and replaced, then we've replaced Dave with a hologram. Nobody's noticed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. All right, last, last one. But by Come no on. means least, this is a nice, quick one. Real simple. You definitely won't disagree with this one. APIs are eating the world. Or eating the universe, I've called it. So, um, <laughs> so as I say, consistently we, we've had, great topic type. We've had... Uh, thank you. Sorry. Um, we've had podcasts on APIs in the past. But yeah. the big thing here is that APIs are everything. The reality is, if you sell a piece of software today that doesn't have an API, that has to sit as a little silo on its own, you aren't going to sell that piece of software. People are selling pieces of software with incredibly, you know, one of the biggest questions that comes up in RFIs and RFPs now is, do you have an API that replicates all the functionality in your application? So I don't have to have, you know, piece of pane of glass one open, pane of glass two open, pane of glass three open to essentially pr achieve one single business process. I want to be able to go API, you know, data comes into application one, does whatever it needs to do, then essentially tells the next piece of software, oh, by the way, I've got some new data for you that I've basically done whatever I need to do on it. Your turn passes it off to them and then on and on and on. So essentially you can highly integrate different pieces of software together to create highly automated business processes. It all comes down to business process, right? If you are integrating on-prem, off-prem, if you are integrating on-prem, on-prem, you do not want to have, as a lot of organizations do, okay, so we need, custom, we need the customer records from this system in this and this and this as well. Or we need our employee records in this system, this and this system. Let's copy and paste them across, and then when they update, we'll just copy and paste again. That's a human being's task. Absolutely not. It introduces error, inconsistency, and it's completely daft. Little integration, API, A to B, job done. Everything from then onwards is highly automated, completely consistent, no problems, job done. You know I agree with you on this one. I mean, it's, it's, <coughs> it's just a no-brainer. You, know, you just got to get your head yeah. around the fact that, you know what, we're not talking about little islands of isolation here when we talk about software development and tools. We're, we're talking about, just think of a Lego kit. Yep. Just think of how easy it is to build whatever the heck you imagine yep. out of a, a set of, of common parts, of parts that actually will fit together. That's all we're talking about here. Exactly. And, and you know what? It's a case of, you know, you've got dev teams, you've got... Um, ISVs, application houses, that can turn around to the customers and say, yeah, you want that? Uh, yeah, you can have it in two weeks' time. Not two months, three months, six months. Oh, yeah, the problem's got three times as worse, or the moment's passed. Yeah, and so I think one of the best examples of this, and we gave this on the API podcast, and if you, if you have any doubt on what APIs are, really, I can seriously advise you, listen to our API podcast. Um, it was season 
two? There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, but long and short, we spoke about how Amazon has grown and, and basically be able to scale its underlying infrastructure to accommodate the monumental web scale growth it's gone through by leveraging APIs. So basically, when one team developed a system, they would basically represent that system as an API to the rest of the business. So if the rest of the business needed a customer system or a customer record system, they didn't have to go and buy their own island or buy their own system. They could just leverage what already existed. If they needed a database, they could leverage what, have, what already existed. If they needed an email system, they could leverage what already existed and literally just integrate via APIs. It's just a no-brainer. And now it's literally every single major... If you're suggesting or buying or acquiring technology and it doesn't have an API, honestly, walk away from it because it's, you are going to find, even if you're not doing the integrations today, one day you're going to turn around to yourselves and say, how do we get the data out of that platform into these other 10 systems that we've now got that all need the same copy of that data to do their little piece of the job? Marketing systems, HR systems, you know, all sorts, Wi-Fi systems, authentication systems. How do we make all of those talk to each other so that at every point in time we have one completely consistent record of all the people in our business or all the customers we deal with or whatever? And your IT director will turn around to you and say, um, yeah, sorry, we can't do that. And you'll ask why. And they'll say, we bought the wrong piece of software. It doesn't have APIs. And on that bombshell, oh. I'm still doing bombshells. I, I, it's like being home. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, come back to us on our Twitter, um, hashtag uh, Arrow Bandwidth, and suggest a better ending to a podcast. I am more than more than welcome to shout you out and, uh, and give you better ones than that. But for now... That's what I've got. So, it's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll speak to you next week. Take care, everyone. Cheers, buddy. Speak Bye. soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye.